We are continuing our series in the Good Shepherd, and this morning I'm going to follow up on the passage that Kyle was doing last Sunday on the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10. So go ahead and open your your Bibles to John chapter 10. Uh, so last Sunday, Kyle was emphasizing the, the beautiful truth in this passage about how uh, he knows our name. Uh, he knows us personally. He knows us uh, very intimately. Uh, and now we need to reflect on the fact that he also knows others besides us. And, uh, and what does that uh, imply for our mission and the, the role of the church? So please stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to start in verse 14, uh, just finish up in verse 18. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let me pray for us. Father, we we pray that we would see Jesus not only as the good shepherd who came to rescue us, but the good shepherd who's come to rescue others. Uh, please work in our hearts the same heart, that same shepherd's heart that would uh, have a concern and a, a proper orientation, a, a, a right love uh, for our neighbor and for the nations. We pray that you would do this, that you'd get glory uh, in your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So I'm going to zero in on verse 16 this morning where Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Uh, and they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and, and one shepherd. Uh, this is part of a, a section of teaching where Jesus is explaining the nature of his mission. And he says three times, beginning in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. And in verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And then in verse 18, he says it again, I lay it down of my own accord. So this is Jesus explaining why he's come. He's come to lay down his life. Why? What, what was the point? He's saying he's doing it to, to save the lost sheep. Now, when Jesus first came, uh, he was a Jewish man uh, born to a Jewish mother and father born in a Jewish town, and, and all of his neighbors were Jewish, and all of this, uh, the people around him that he grew up around were Jewish. And then when he began his earthly ministry, his public ministry, all of the disciples were Jewish. All of the people that he interacted with were with Jewish. With rare exception, almost every encounter that you see Jesus have in the, in the Gospels is with Jewish people. And so when you hear Jesus saying, you know, I've come to, to save the lost, I'm coming after the sheep, the his, his immediate community, all of his people who are hearing him speaking these words, they're thinking he's come as, a, as God's Jewish Messiah come to save his chosen people. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament, you know, all the way back to Abraham, Abraham's descendants, and, uh, you know, God's people understood that he had chosen them, had entered into this 
covenantal relationship, making these promises to the nation of Israel. And that's how they viewed themselves, very nationalistically, very ethnically. And here Jesus is saying something to disrupt that view of themselves and to disrupt their view of what is the nature of Jesus' saving mission. It's sort of out of the blue almost. Jesus says, I have other sheep also. And you've got to imagine that those who are listening to Jesus are a little bit confused. What, what are the other sheep? We're the sheep. God is our shepherd. So you can imagine that this would be a little bit uh, confusing or disruptive. But the truth is that Jesus is saying, I have other sheep that are not of this you know, Jewish community. They are part of the Gentile community. Uh, they are part of the non-Jewish community. They're part of the community that's extremely different, very other. You know, when he says, I have other sheep, he means other. Very other, very different. And you and I actually, for the most part, constitute that other community. I don't know everybody here. Maybe some of you actually do come out of a Jewish background. But if you are like me and your heritage is some kind of crazy mix of maybe European descent or Asian or Latino or whatever the case may be, that means you're not Jewish. (laughs) And therefore, you and I are part of the other sheep. And if Jesus had not been so committed to the other you and I would not be here right now. We would still be without God and without hope in the world. We would still be in our sins. Jesus did not have to come for the other sheep. Nothing compelled him. Nothing warranted that. Nothing persuaded him or you know, put him in, backed him into a corner, hey, you must, you know, include some other sheep. You need to be an equal opportunity savior. No, nothing was forcing his hand. Furthermore, the same can be said about the original flock. There was nothing that was compelling him to come at all. I mean, not just to be other-oriented in the sense that, okay, there are these non-Jewish members that I need to add to the flock, But there was nothing compelling him truly about us, about humanity, whether they were Jewish or non-Jewish, that would have merited him coming and and being other-oriented even as it regarded the Jewish community. Because at the end of the day, it was simply what was within him, his heart, his desire to reach out to the other, to get outside of himself to leave what you, know, you maybe could call the comforts of heaven, the security of heaven, the, the blessings of heaven, and to come and embrace the incarnation. That came from a very other-oriented commitment within his good and glorious heart to come and to embrace our frailty and humanity, to come and get dirty and sweaty, to come and to understand uh, the heat and the cold of this world, to come and understand hunger and thirst. He did that because that's part of his other-oriented heart. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to come and subject himself to, um, you know, people's fickle emotions. He didn't have to come and subject himself to people's being dismissive of him mocking him, making fun of him. He didn't have to come and subject himself to their betrayal or manipulation. And he certainly didn't have to come and subject himself to their fists and their thorns 
and their nails and to endure the curse of death on the cross. Where did that come from? That came from his other-oriented heart, a heart that looks out outward, that's not consumed with himself. And this is part of the glory and the goodness of Jesus is that he cares what's written on your name tag. He cares about your name. He's not so concerned about him that he can't think about others. And so when we think about him as the good shepherd, yeah, we totally relate to that. That is good news that he came and he loved me and he gave himself for me, just like Paul could tell the Philippians. And he came and he loved you and he gave himself for you if you believe that he is your Christ, that he is your Messiah, he is your your sin-bearing substitute, your righteous representative with all of the obedience and the goodness and the rightness of his life and all of the, the, the sacrificial satisfaction that happened because he died in your place. If you believe that's who Jesus is, then that means that you are his sheep and he knows your name. And he loves you, and, and, and it's beautiful. And he, he knows what's written on your name tag. You don't even need a name tag. It's good news for Kyle, right? He doesn't need a name tag. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. Sorry, bad, bad joke. Anyway, Jesus is for us, and that's a beautiful picture of the gospel is that he's other-oriented. But here's, the, here's what we need to zero in on this morning. Just because Jesus is for us does not mean Therefore, that you and I are the end of the chain of his attention. You and I are not the last link. We are a link in a long chain that continues long after us. And so just as Jesus is for us, Christ is for us and he loved us and he calls us to be for others. He calls us to be recipients of his grace, but he also calls us to be recipients of his heart and to become like him in our other orientation. Um, so let's, let's look, more about, look more at that. Um, what the gospel does when it, when it saves us and it translates us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus, and it also transforms us. It recalibrates us. It recalibrates our sense of, of self. The fall of humanity, uh, the fall of humanity and the sin, meant that what God designed uh, for the human race, which was originally not just good but very good, it even gets that um, that qualifier. It's very good in Genesis two. What He designed as very good became corrupt. Uh, we polluted it. We vandalized it. Uh, we we took uh, this this beautiful design that God created humanity to be. Um, fundamentally uh, in, in this relationship with our neighbor and with him where we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, uh, that you think about that order that we are outward and upward first and then other-oriented uh, as it relates to ourselves, that there's a beauty in that, in that order. Uh, we're actually last in that. But what ended up happening is the fall meant that we inverted that. We turned it upside down. We said, no, I want to be first. I want to be first. As I relate to my neighbor and as I relate to God, that, that I'm not here to serve others and to serve God. Others are here to serve me, and God is here to serve me. If you want to know what the, what's wrong with the world, a brief history of, of the world's brokenness, that's it. 
Because ever since then, we've begun hating our neighbor because they're not serving us the way we think they should, the way we feel entitled for them to serve us. And we end up hating God because he's not serving us the way we think he should and the way we feel entitled to be served by the deity. And that leads us ultimately to just hating ourselves. It's just complete brokenness. And the gospel is repairing that. Uh, What we turned upside down, uh, Jesus is restoring to its, its rightful place. So one of the key evidences of the gospel's work, how do you know? How do you know if, if you've, you've been changed? How do you know if you're a Christian? How do you know if you've been adopted into God's family? Well, you look for family resemblance, right? When somebody's a member of a family, they start to take on the, the family characteristics. We start to become more and more like the one who loved us. His love transforms us. So one of the key evidences of the gospel's transforming work in our lives is that it recalibrates our sense of self. And it changes us so that we become less and less, not completely, not definitively, not this side of heaven, but but indeed, incrementally, less and less absorbed with ourselves and more and more concerned for the other, for our neighbor and for God attentive to what's outside of us. In short, it makes us more like the humanity God makes to be. It makes us more and more like Jesus, right? So uh, Tim Keller, in a sermon that became a book, that and that's the book that we generally give out to our guests um, throughout the year, but we've got a special book during October Outreach. In his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, um, he says this about what the gospel does, uh, its work in our hearts. He says that the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person, like a person who's been truly beautifully humbled by the gospel, is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking of myself or uh, thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Does that make sense? It's not thinking more of myself, and it's not thinking less of myself. Like, don't, don't believe that just to become a mature Christian, you've got to think you're, you're dirt and you're awful. You don't think more of yourself. You don't think less of yourself. But a great way to summarize it is you just think about yourself less. So that really you're not so concerned about your name on the name tag as it is, I want to know your name. I want to get to know you better. I want to know how I can serve you better. I want to know more about God. I want to know more about what His heart is. I want to know how I can serve Him better. Uh, And so we become less and less focused on ourselves, feeling less and less entitled, more and more with this this heart of Jesus who is other-oriented. So it's not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking about ourselves less. So when we kind of get to the question of, well, what does that mean about, like, that third part of the great commandment? Well, we are supposed to love ourselves, but in the right proportion and a right relationship to others and to God. And what happens is we end up loving ourselves rightly if we can think about ourselves less. Does that make sense? Uh, We're not so preoccupied with our ego. We can stop obsessing over what people think about us. We can stop comparing ourselves with others in terms of how it makes us look. I can stop feeling better when I'm in the presence of somebody that I think is, you know, less qualified or less gifted. I can stop feeling inferior when I'm in the presence of somebody who's obviously got greater gifts or greater experience or greater wisdom. Instead, I can just be free to love people. Forget about myself for a while. (laughs) Get over myself. Um, 
And this is what happens when we really begin to understand that we're loved. I don't need that worth, that self-worth from my neighbor. I can stop competing. Once I'm resting in, relishing in the love that Jesus has for me, then I overflow. I've got resources to give. I start, I start being concerned about myself with regard to the one who loves my soul. And you know this is true uh, if you've ever crushed on somebody, right? You've had a um, and, and remember when you fell in love, if you're married, you know, and hopefully you're, you, you still have these moments, right, where you go, oh my goodness, uh, I love this person so much, and, I, and now I start to think about myself in relation to, to I want to please them. Uh, I want my appearance to be pleasing to them. I want my, uh, my smell to be pleasing uh, to them. I want my words to be pleasing to them. Um, to where we, we are concerned about ourselves in relation to the other. Not to get from them, but to give to them. Um, this is what Henry Skugel uh, lived 300 years ago, Scottish pastor. We're, we're using his book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, to give some framework to our men's um, morning uh, discipleship discussions. And he says that when a soul recognizes that it's loved, especially when, when we realize that we're loved by God, we begin to mind our own concernments. This is old language, remember. We begin to mind our own concernments, what concerns us, not so much because they are His, they are ours, but because the beloved is pleased to own an interest in them. So we become dear unto ourselves because we are dear unto the other. Does that make sense? That's how we end up. That's a, that's a healthy form of self-love because I know that I'm loved by God. And that makes me love myself property rather than this whole sort of worldly self-love that's just, you know, narcissistic and entitled. So Jesus is saying something very important to help uh, recalibrate our sense of self when he says, I, I'm here for other sheep. You're not the end of the chain. And he says, I must bring them also, these other sheep, right? And that means that he's willing to leave the 99. Uh, this isn't an option for Jesus. He uses the word must. I must bring them also. He didn't say, I'll try to bring them. Boy, it'd be nice to bring them. Gosh, that would be such a great plan. I hope it comes to pass, you know, we'll give it the old college try. No, he says, this is a non-negotiable. This is going to happen. And he explains the cost that he's willing to pay uh, in other places, other parables, where he talks about the lost sheep, right? That the good shepherd is willing, if one sheep is lost, the good shepherd is willing to leave the 99 and go after the one that is lost. And we go, wow, I love the parable of the, the good shepherd. I love that because, you know, I'm the lost sheep, and that means that Jesus was willing to come after me and save me and come seek after me individually, and I go, that makes me feel loved and appreciated. But can I just tell you that as good as that is, that's not the point of the parable. That parable was not told to a bunch of people who were the lost sheep as much as it was told primarily 
to the people who considered themselves part of the 99. They were on the inside. They were the flock. They were, they were feeling pretty good about themselves because they were the, law, the, the, the um, scribes and the Pharisees and the law keepers. And Jesus is trying to help them see, wait a minute, guys, let's, 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 I want you to see that I must pursue the lost sheep. This is not optional. That the good shepherd, an average shepherd might think, you know what, okay, uh, 100 sheep, 99 here, I've lost one, uh, you know, I've got 99, what's 1% lost? That's, we're, we're good here, let's go home, too, too bad uh, for that poor sheep. The good shepherd is not content. He's not going to settle for just a 1% loss. He's not going to have any loss. And so the message to those who felt like you know, they've got their act together, that they're on the good side of the shepherd, and, you know, is, look, you need to have the heart of the shepherd. So what would it look like to reimagine that parable? Not so much, you know, what's the, on, on the front of your bullets, and there's the image of the, the good shepherd, and he's got the, the lost sheep on his shoulders, right? And we think of that parable in terms of that one lost sheep. And that's, that's not wrong, but that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is actually on those sheep in the background. Put yourself in their fleece. I don't know. Um, put, 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 imagine you're one of them, and you're watching the good shepherd leave the 99. You're leaving you and all your buddies going after can we be honest here? That stupid, worthless, wandering, good-for-nothing, non-weight-pulling, whatever sheep, you know, uh, good-for-mutton. Um, <laughs> come on, what about us? What about us? Well, what about us? Why would Jesus say he's the good shepherd is willing to leave the 99 to go after the one? Because the good shepherd wants us to, instead of thinking about ourselves, is to think about others and to have the same heart that the good shepherd has. This is a discipleship opportunity. This is an invitation for us to grow, that we should have the heart of the good shepherd who loves the lost. I mean, the parable breaks down at a point. We're not supposed to to take away from that this thought that, oh, well, the good shepherd is willing to leave the 99 to the ravages of the wolves and the elements, and, oh, it's going to be bad for them, but good for that one. No, that, you, know, you, you can't stretch the parable out too far. Uh, another way of viewing this is two parables later, the parable of the um, prodigal son. I want to rename it the parable of the other son. The other son. So you know how it goes. I think most of you know about the, the prodigal son. He's the one that wastes all the money, goes off and, you know, spoils his inheritance, and then he, he repents, and he comes back, and he says, I'm sorry, and his father loves him and kisses him and has a party for him. The older brother <laughs> is, is who I want to focus on, because Jesus tells us about the older son, and I'm going to read from Luke 15 here. The older son, the older brother, was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come 
And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. The older brother was angry and refused to go in. So this is a great picture of what, how... Um, Religion can be a kind of a trap. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, Jesus was a very religious person. <laughs> Being religious is not the problem. The problem is when you substitute religion for a relationship with God. And people that are religious can fall into a trap of thinking that if I obey the rules, if I, you know, toe the line, I'm good with God. And I'm much better than those that don't do those things. Where is the older brother when the servant comes to him? He's out in the field. What's he doing in the field? Is he having a picnic? Is he painting a sunset, you know, all plein air? Um, he's working. He's in the field and he's working. He's doing what good, hardworking people do. And when he hears that his younger brother, the profligate, awful, you know, spoiled, rotten, selfish, you know, jerk comes home, instead of celebrating and instead of entering into the joy of his father, participating in his father's heart for the other that has come home, or instead of participating in his brother's heart to be relieved and welcomed home and embraced and reconciled, he's all about himself. He's not about the other. And that's what religion can do to us if we're not careful. Religious people can be very dutiful, very hardworking, and very angry. How are you doing? How, how angry are you? Anger is a good emotion. Jesus felt anger. He felt anger at the right things. He felt anger when there was genuine injustice happening around him. And sometimes we get in on, on that righteous anger, that right anger. But I think a lot of times when we're angry, it's not coming from a good place. It's coming from kind of a selfish place. Where's the attention that I deserve? Where's the blessing I deserve? How come it's going toward him? How come it's going toward her? How come, how come the world's not revolving around me? And it's that ugly, selfish, sinful part of our heart that's rearing its head again. Um, and we've got to kill that. The gospel's got to smother that. The gospel's got to raise up out of that death something new, um, something other-oriented where, no, 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 no. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. He calls me to love others and give myself for others. And that's this beautiful, restorative, recreating work that the gospel does to free us from our self-centeredness so that we can become other-centered, uh, focused on God and our neighbor. So um, let me talk about two things that will bring this home and then we're going to be done because uh, Jesus says, I must bring these others also. It's non-negotiable, absolutely imperative, and other-oriented. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And what this gets to is uh, Jesus' mission, which becomes our mission. 
and which tells us our position uh, ultimately. So when we think about mission, the church is on mission to reach the lost, just like Jesus was on mission to reach the lost, and we're following him, and so we're doing what he does, right? And this is a positive thing. Um, we, we, we hear uh, quotes like, you know, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members, um, Archbishop Temple, and we go, wow, that's awesome. I love being a part of, of that other-oriented community, and it feels like, you know, okay, we're different, we're world-changing, uh, and we're, we're part of this mission that Jesus has called us to. And, and we do that in individual ways and in corporate ways. Individually, how do we do that? Um, we're doing October outreach. And, uh, and so I want to invite you, I want to invite our whole congregation, take the month of October, invite somebody to church. One of your friends, one of your coworkers, or whatever, invite them to church. If they say no, you know, you can't control that. What you can control is whether or not you invite them. Invite somebody out uh, for a meal or over to your home. Just show hospitality. Be other-oriented. You know, do the name tags. Do the 30-second rule. Remember the 30-second rule? People have about new people. It takes them about less than 30 seconds to determine whether a church is cold or whether it's warm. And that happens right after the benediction. So don't turn to the person who makes, you know, your, your buddy, turn to somebody who you don't know yet and uh, let them know that this is a warm church. Um, and we do that individually. And then there's creative ways to do that too. So we were at the Fall Foliage uh, Art Show yesterday doing uh, sidewalk chalk. And Danny Rogers has got his easel and he's doing watercolors. And Sarah uh, Ann Allen is, is doing uh, the, the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. I'm doing The Rich Young Ruler uh, by Watts, and, uh, and we're talking to people, and they're coming up, and it's great because we you're immediately talking about you know, a story from the Bible and connecting it to the gospel. And some people are engaging, and some people, you know, I'm telling them, here's The Rich Young Ruler. He had a conversation with Jesus, and the minute, you know, the second I say Jesus, they're like, okay, I'm out of here. Um, but we had these little flyers that we were handing out to people. Mark Allen is, was a beast, took it upon himself. He's just handing these out to everybody. Anybody that came up, hey, here's a little summary of the picture. And that's, that's that individual sense of mission. It's the Hales yesterday hosting a block party. Of their own, you know, out of their own intentionality, their own plan, nobody told them to do it. It wasn't this grand design. Hey, the elders said you should do a block party. They just decided, hey, we're going to throw a block party for our neighbors and just bless our, our community. That's a perfect example of what we're talking about, about being individuals on mission. And then corporately, all these individuals together, we as a church are on mission. Uh, and we're, we're certainly observing that with our missions conference this weekend where we've got, you know, all of the missionaries that we're trying to get to know better, trying to pray for them more intentionally, um, especially you think about the McCalls. Uh, the, uh, John and Lorena are the first uh, sort of like homegrown missionaries that we've had uh, as a church, which I love because of how uh, our denomination's mission organization, MTW, is challenging every church in the PCA to sort of make this offering, like think of it as a 1% offering from your church to the mission field, not in money, but in people, like missionaries, sending 1% of your church out onto the mission field. Tabernacle's got just a little bit above 100 households. So the McCall's are our, our 1% going to Peru. And, um, and we, we need to get them there. They're at 48% of their support team 
And I know a ton of you are, are supporting them, and thank you for that. Uh, others of you, maybe you haven't had an opportunity to meet with them or hear about what they're doing. Uh, please, we, we, need to, we need to close that gap and get them to 100%. Uh, so I want to make this personal appeal. If you're supporting them and if you can do more, please pray about doing more. If the timing wasn't right for you or you don't know, you know, you weren't able to do it when they were asking you, please just even consider $20 a month. That's like a couple of pizzas a month uh, to help get them to Peru, to the city where hundreds of thousands of people will live and die without really hearing about what it means that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, for them personally, to, for, for them as the other. Uh, we don't want to see that happen. Um, so we want to be a church that's concerned to bless our neighbors and to bless the nations. And that's what it means for us to be on mission. But what Jesus is saying here about, you know, one flock and one shepherd also tells us about our position. Um, we, we sort of like the idea of being on mission. It gives us this sense of, uh, of identity and purpose and nobility. But let me also say that when it comes to our position, the leaders of Tabernacle, the leadership of this church, just like Jesus, are not supposed to make any one individual or person or household or whatever the center of their attention. None of us is the center of the church's attention. We're a link in the chain, not the end of the chain. And then we go, uh-oh, now that feels weird, right? I thought the church was here for me. Um, so, so you know the caricature of the guy who says, I pay my tithe, that pastor better show up when I say, well, he better jump however high I say he should jump or whatever. I mean, that's a terrible um, exaggeration. But what about when the church decides, um, you know what, we want to be more other-oriented, uh, and we, we've got these other people in our community that we'd like to do a better job reaching, so we're going to mix things up. We're going to change the music. You know what? Don't mess with my music, right? <laughs> I like the music. Don't mess with that. Uh, what if we decided we were going to... Uh, like totally revamp the genre of worship music we do? What if we decide we'll totally change the, the time of the, of the service? No, I like my 11 o'clock. Don't mess with that. You know, um, a while back, we totally disrupted Tabernacle. It was awful. <laughs> when we planted Holy Cross in Stanton, it was like a death had, had happened as we said goodbye to a third of our friends. Do you know why we do that? For the sake of the other. To be other-oriented the way our good shepherd is other-oriented. So where, where's your line? I mean, we're not going to, we'll, we'll never change the message. We'll never, you know, compromise truth. But what's changeable and transformable are the forms. And when it comes to reaching others, you know, we got to be open to that. And I pray that we'll have another very disruptive chapter. I don't know when, I don't know where, but we're, we're not done planting. Um, just something to think about. It sounds like bad news. It's not. I know we want to be cared for, but we don't want to be that, that, that only child um, who, when mom and dad come to them and say, guess what, little Johnny? Or guess what, little Susie? You're going to have a baby brother. Or you're going to have a baby sister. And they're like, oh no, my empire is threatened. Uh, in, in China, when they had the one-child policy, thankfully, um, they, they backed off of that about six years ago. 
But for 30 years, 30 plus years, China insisted that families can only have one child, and so that meant that everybody wanted to have a son, which was awful news for daughters. Um, but for that one son, boy, things were good. Good, good, good. Like so good that they became this um, subculture known as the Little Emperors. <laughs> uh, Time Magazine in 2010 wrote an article, said for years now, Chinese parents and teachers have lamented what's known as the Little Emperor phenomenon, a generation of pampered and entitled children who believe they sit at the center of the social universe because that's exactly how they've been treated. Um, there were even uh, an anecdote about companies um, who would post job listings, no single children apply, you know, because they didn't want to deal with the, the little emperors. So the good news is there's only one emperor in the universe, and he's a good emperor. He's a good shepherd. He's a good emperor, and he has a good kingdom, and he has other sheep to bring into his kingdom, and he is calling us to partner with him, to be on board with him as he's gathering them in. And we have to bring them also. We're like him. We're his arms and his feet. We're his body. So this isn't just a job to do. This isn't just, all right, go get busy. Go on, Tabernacle. Get busy. Uh, it's not just a job to do. It's, it's, it's becoming like him. It's having the heart of the good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, would you help us uh, get over ourselves and help us uh, to not follow uh, the world's um, narcissism and entitlement, but instead to follow our good shepherd uh, who loved us and gave himself for us, and that is such good news to us, uh, but who also loves others and gave himself for others, and we wrestle with that like, uh, like older children maybe. So please help us get over our older brother, older sister.